A one-size-fits-all method for criticizing rules you don't like, how to debate a moral nihilist, and why you probably won't learn anything when you do. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Today's episode covers Socrates' conversation with Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus is the star of Book One. He presents Socrates with the most radical moral position so far, and he argues it harder than either of the other two characters. Thrasymachus is a moral skeptic. He says there's no such thing as right and wrong, that concepts like justice and morality are just lies used to manipulate and control the naive. The wise man, according to Thrasymachus, sees through these lies and uses injustice to get the better of others every chance he gets. He has the same moral orientation as the Nihilists in The Big Lebowski. So Thrasymachus is kind of a dangerous character. And what makes him even more dangerous is that he's a pro. He's a sophist, a traveling teacher of the art of rhetoric, and therefore he's a rival to Socrates for the hearts and minds of the young men of Athens. In Athens, rhetoric was a very important skill for young Athenians who had any ambition. Because as we learned in previous episodes, Athenian politics and law involved a lot of public speaking. If you wanted to get your way politically, you have to be able to persuade the assembly. If you wind up in court, and if you are a rich and powerful Athenian, you are definitely going to wind up in court at some point. You can't just hire a lawyer, whether you're on defense or whether you're the prosecution. You have to represent your own case. I like to compare studying rhetoric in ancient Athens to going to law school now. You learn the tools that you need to win in court and in life. And when you're done, you have these skills that you can use however you want. You can use them to make money, to get ahead of politically, or even to do the city some good, if that's your thing. So the conversation between Thrasymachus and Socrates is a head-to-head face-off between possible mentors for the young Athenians. You've got Socrates, the philosopher, who teaches his students how to think and philosophize about justice and virtue and how to examine their lives even though they may wind up knowing nothing. And then you've got Thrasymachus, who gives the boys permission to listen to their darkest desires and promises to give them the power to fulfill them. So you can think of the two of them as a kind of angel and devil on the shoulders of these young men. The setup for the conversation between Socrates and Thrasymachus is that, if you remember the last episode, Polemarchus came in, he started off with the view that justice was all about helping your friends and hurting your enemies. But after a few minutes of questions from Socrates, he completely flips around. He agrees with Socrates that loyalty cannot be the definition of justice, and that you should never harm anyone, good or bad, enemy or friend. And they're about to go on to explore what justice could be together. And that's when Thrasymachus interrupts. Playing Thrasymachus today, we have Paul Sagar, who is a professor of political theory at King's College London. The paraphrase is a little bit longer than usual today, but stick to it and I will break in in the middle to say a little bit about what's going on. 
But during the dialogue, listen for two main things. One is Thrasymachus's position on justice, and two is how he responds to Socrates and the Socratic method. To picture the scene, in the text, Socrates says that he's already seen Thrasymachus trying to get up and interrupt, but the others held him back before. But now he breaks loose and, quote, sprang at them like a wild beast at his prey. And this is what he says. Well, good. It looks like we're in agreement. If we hear anyone from now on say that justice is helping your friends and hurting your enemies, will you, Polymarchus, be on my side to fight against them? Absolutely. I'm ready to be your partner in battle. It's settled then. But since we know that this isn't justice, what else could it be? What's wrong with you two? Why are you both just agreeing with each other? Look, Socrates, I really want to know what justice is. You should stop showing off by just refuting whatever other people say and just try answering yourself. Just for once, stop giving us these weasley answers like justice is what is beneficial or what is profitable or what is good for you. I won't accept it. Thrasymachus, I'm sorry. Polymarchus and I were just looking for a definition of justice. If we happen to make a mistake somewhere, please don't get mad at us. You should pity us because we're just too simple to figure out the true answer. Ha! I knew it. The famous irony of Socrates. I predicted this. I told these people you play dumb and refuse to answer any questions. It's always like this. Never says what he actually thinks. Just asks these dumb rhetorical questions over and over. But Thrasymachus... How could anyone answer who, to start with, doesn't even know the answer and never claimed to know the answer? And on top of that, has already been forbidden by a brilliant and very important man from saying any of the things that he thought justice might be. No, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense for you to answer Thrasymachus. Come on, I can tell from the look on your face that you have something very clever to tell us. So don't be shy. Let us all benefit from your wisdom. And if it's a good answer, I promise we'll reward you with lots of applause. Yeah, tell us, Thrasymachus. Go on, Thrasymachus. No! Let's hear Socrates speak. I mean, he's the one who's always shooting down everybody else. Come on, Thrasymachus. We all want to hear what you have to say, and we'll all praise your answer if it's a good one. And I'm sure it'll be great. Oh, typical Socrates. Always learning from others, never teaching anything himself. Fine, I'll tell you the answer if you really want to know. Justice is the advantage of the stronger. That's it. You can start the applause now. Don't worry, Thrasymachus. I promise we'll give you all the applause you deserve. But first, could you help me understand exactly what you mean by the advantage of the stronger? Because wrestling champions are strong, and it's advantageous for them to eat a lot of beef to build up their muscles. So do you mean it's good and just for weak people like us to eat a lot of beef? 
Oh, you are disgusting, Socrates. <laughs> that was that was bad, even for you. You you just misrepresent everything that anyone says to you. But all right, I'll explain it. Every city has a ruling class. Yes, we all agree on that. And in democracies, it's the people. In aristocracies, it's the aristocrats. And in a tyranny, guess what? It's the tyrant. And look, whoever is in charge. If it's a democracy or a tyranny, whoever's in charge, they make the laws, and therefore they define what justice means. And obviously, those who make the laws do so to their own advantage. So therefore, when you are just, when you're a good boy and you obey all the rules, you're just serving the man who made the rules. So you're acting to the advantage of the stronger. Is that clear enough for you? Maybe, but first. Let me ask you a few questions. Are you saying that it's just for the subjects to obey the rulers? I am. And the rulers, do they ever make any mistakes? I guess that happens from time to time. But when these rulers make mistakes, that must mean that they sometimes make laws that are not to their advantage. Correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. But whatever laws they make, it's just for the people to obey them. Yes. So you're saying it's just to do what's good for the stronger, but it's also just to do what's not good for the stronger. What? Well, if it's always just to do what the rulers command, and the rulers sometimes command things that are not to their advantage because they've made a mistake, then it's just to do what is not. To the ruler's advantage. Ah,、oh, you're always pulling these tricks, aren't you, Socrates? Think about it like this: every actual person makes mistakes sometimes, right? <laughs> Doctors accidentally make people sick, but that's not why we call them a doctor. It's because they heal people. And accountants—they make mistakes sometimes, right? That's not why we call them accountants. No, insofar as they are a doctor. Or an accountant, or anyone with a skill, they're doing their job right, and it's the same with rulers, right? Insofar as a person is a ruler, he doesn't make mistakes. He makes the rules that are best for him, and these are the rules that people have to follow. So, what if he sometimes makes bad rules or makes mistakes? That's not the point. The point is that the ruler is the person who makes the rules, and they make those rules to serve themselves. Do you really think I'm asking all these questions just to trick you, Thrasymachus? Yes, that's what you always do. But don't worry, because I can see through your tricks. Try whatever you want; it won't do you any good today. Well, I would never dare to try to play tricks on the great Thrasymachus. But tell me this: the art of medicine—what does it do? Does it take care of bodies and keep them healthy? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. And I guess you would say that. Horsemanship takes care of horses, and seamanship takes care of the ship and the seamen. Yes, yes, yes. And when we call someone a doctor, in so far as they are a doctor, as you like to say, we mean that they're a person who is the best at taking care of patients, correct? Not the one who's the best at taking care of doctors or the man who makes the most money. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. And so Thrasymachus. No one in any position of authority, whether doctor or sea captain or horse breeder, 
thinks about what's good for himself. He only thinks about what's good for the person or the thing in his command. The doctor thinks of the patients, the sea captain thinks of his sailors, and the horse beater thinks of the horses. And this would also apply to rulers in a city, would it not? If they have any skill at all, rulers should work for the benefit of the ruled, not for themselves. Have you got a nanny, Socrates? Is your nanny about today? Why do you ask that? Because she forgot to wipe your leaking nose. And she never taught you the difference between the sheep and the shepherd. Like a child. A ruler cares for the ruled like a shepherd cares for his sheep. He's just fattening them up so we can have a better dinner. Oh, you're such an expert on justice and injustice, aren't you, Socrates? But you can't even see that the person who goes out of his way to be just and follow all the rules and never do any wrong, well, that person is like the sheep. He's just serving the stronger man. And he's hurting himself by doing that. So let me state it as clearly as I can. It's good to be unjust. It's bad to be just. The man who does injustice is stronger and wiser and better and happier than the just man. Doing injustice does you more good and is more profitable. The person who's just, well, they just think they're being good, but they're naive. They're like the sheep. They're just serving themselves up to the powerful and doing nothing for themselves. Look, just think about it. Whenever the just man and the unjust man meet, it's always the unjust man who comes out on top. They enter a contract. The just man gets the short end of the stick. The just man pays his taxes, whilst the unjust man avoids them, and he benefits for free. If the unjust man holds public office, when he leaves office, in fact, if he leaves office, he's richer and more powerful than ever. When the just man holds office, he waits all his time serving the public. He neglects his own affairs, and even loses his friends because he won't do them any special favours. He's like the shepherd who gives his own food to his flock and then goes hungry at night. If you want the clearest example of why being bad is actually good for you, think of the highest form of injustice we know. Tyranny. The tyrant, he commits injustice on a massive scale. He enslaves an entire city for his own benefit. And when he does, he does it for his own benefit, for his happiness. And it's misery for everyone else, but he doesn't care. He takes what he wants from whoever he wants, and he takes it whenever he wants. And what do other people say? They call him blessed and happy, even as fellow citizens. People who say injustice is bad are just too weak or too afraid to pull it off. It's only the people with the courage to act unjustly that serve themselves. They're the people who've really got it figured out. So it's like I said right at the start before all your stupid questions. Justice is what's good for the stronger and injustice is what's good for yourself. So there, I'm done. Goodbye, Socrates. And that is how Thrasymachus tries to end the conversation. I want to pause here and talk about Thrasymachus's position and the challenge it poses to Socrates. Let's start with his critique of justice. Thrasymachus says that justice is the advantage of the stronger. And by that he means that all of our ideas of right and wrong, the rules that we follow, they don't have any internal justification. They're just instruments that the strong use to control the weak. And so they don't really have any claim on our obedience. 
and by itself, this is not a crazy idea. Criticizing a rule or norm by trying to depict it as a power play is a common and versatile move, and I recommend it. Let's say you want to steal something or cheat on your taxes, and someone's telling you not to. You could say, hey, these laws against me stealing are bullshit. Our country sends pickpockets and house robbers to prison. But if you're a banker and you send the entire world into financial crisis, you probably get a bonus. The laws are just here to protect the rich. They have no legitimacy. So I'm going to do what I want. And so should you. Same move as Thrasymachus. Or if you're feeling unwanted pressure to start a family, for example, you could say that pro-breeding domestic norms were invented and imposed by an agricultural patriarchy to dominate women. And on the other hand, if you don't like how norms around gender are changing nowadays, you could always try arguing that a powerful feminist conspiracy has taken over the media and the universities, and that modern feminism is just a power grab. I'm not saying that any or all of these are true, My point is to show that you can use this form of argument on basically any law or norm that you want to criticize. Everybody does it. But Thrasymachus, he does it differently. Because most people who use this kind of argument, they just use it to criticize specific norms and laws. And then they usually go on to argue for a different kind of law that would be more justified. The current laws are just here to protect the rich, So you propose new laws that would be more fair. Not Thrasymachus. He's a moral skeptic. That means he takes the argument to the radical conclusion that all norms and laws and ideas of justice are nothing but expressions of power. There is no point in carrying on the search for a better definition of justice because there's no such thing. And since there's no such thing as a true definition of justice... There's no point in trying to be a just person. There's just power, and the only thing to do is to get as much of it as possible by any means possible. Moral skepticism is not a very common position. You're not going to meet many moral skeptics. And partly, this is because it's just really hard to live by, because the human brain has a ton of moral impulses just built into it. And partly, it's because... If you were a genuine moral skeptic just out for your own advantage against everyone else, you probably wouldn't be saying it in public. But if you ever do meet someone who defends moral skepticism in public, you'll find that it is a fairly difficult position to argue with. And this is why. Most conversations about ethics are powered by moral intuitions. And by that, I just mean your feelings about what's right and wrong. Cephalus had an intuition that if you borrow something from someone and they ask for it back, you should give it to them. And to get a conversation going with him, Socrates tried to give him a contradictory intuition. He said, imagine the thing that you borrowed was weapons and the person who wanted it back was a friend in the middle of a mental health crisis. And this produced an opposing intuition that told Cephalus that he shouldn't return the weapons in that situation. And the idea is that when you get conflicting intuitions and your theory for why you should do things doesn't fit them, you have to do some philosophy to try to figure out how to fit them together 
or if you have to throw away some of your intuitions. And that is just what drives the conversation forward. But you can't do this with a skeptic, because every time you try to appeal to their moral intuitions, they'll say, no, that's naive. If you say, Thrasymachus, surely you'll accept that kicking puppies is wrong. He'll say, well, that's just what they want you to think. The only thing that matters is what's in it for me when I'm deciding whether to kick puppies. People like Thrasymachus basically deny all moral intuitions, so you can't even get the ball rolling. But Socrates can't just sit there and do nothing, because he's in a showdown for these young men. Socrates wants them to be good, and Thrasymachus is there giving them permission to be as bad as they want to be, and promising to help give them the power to do it successfully. So how does Socrates deal with Thrasymachus if he can't appeal to any moral intuitions? Well, he still has logic. Thrasymachus has made a bunch of claims about injustice. He says injustice is noble and profitable and wise. He says it's strong and it makes the unjust man more happy than the just man. In the next section of the dialogue, Socrates is going to respond to Thrasymachus and he's going to attack all of those claims one by one using his usual method of asking a million questions that are not obviously related and catching people in contradictions. I'm going to skip over a lot of the details of Socrates' argument in the next section, but don't worry because the details of the argument are not the main point. Instead, Listen for how Socrates' technique works, how he tries to refute Thrasymachus, and how Thrasymachus reacts to his efforts. When we left off, Thrasymachus had just finished presenting his position, dropped the mic, and was making like he was going to leave. So there, I'm done. Goodbye, Socrates. Where is he going? Don't go yet. Come back, Thrasymachus! Yes, Thrasymachus. Stay. You wouldn't really dump such a long speech right in our ears without sticking around to find out if it was true, would you? This stuff is important. If you're right, and being bad is good, you could completely change all of our lives. But personally, I'm not completely convinced. I still have this nagging feeling that being just is good, and that being unjust is bad even if you let the unjust person get away with whatever they want. I still think justice may be more profitable, and I may not be the only person in this room who thinks that way. So, just stay and convince us that it's really better to be unjust. Ah, oh, what else do you want me to do to convince you? Shove the argument down your throat with a spoon? No thank you, Thrasymachus. Just answer a few more questions. For starters, you said injustice is profitable. Do you also think it's beautiful and strong? Yes, I do. And do you think that a just man would be willing to get the better of another just man? Uh, no, of course not. If he did that, he wouldn't be the naive simpleton that we know he is. And does the just man think he should get the better of the unjust man? Well, yes. But he can't. And does the unjust man get the advantage of the just man? And how about of other unjust men? And what about a musical man? And he's quite-
on that point, Thrasymachus, earlier you said that injustice is wise and good, and now you're saying that it's neither of those things. Do you remember also when you said that injustice is strong? I remember, Socrates, and I want you to know that I don't agree with what you're saying right now. But if I start talking, you're going to complain that I'm making long speeches and start interrupting me again. So listen, either you let me say as much as I want, or you can keep your questioning. And I'll just sit here and nod and say, okay, to whatever you say, like the rest of the yes-men, until you're done. You know, Thrasymachus, I think I'll keep asking questions because I think you're really onto something here. Now you keep answering and try not to contradict anything that you just told me in my last 38 questions. Now, would you say that contrary to what you said originally, the just man will be blessed and happy and good and wise and strong? Ugh, fine, yeah, anything you say, Socrates. And would you also say that unjust people are dumb and weak and miserable? Yeah, yeah, I suppose. And it's not very profitable to be miserable, is it, Thrasymachus? Uh, no, it isn't. But that's it, Socrates. I'm done. I, I hope you're satisfied with all your arguments. Thank you, Thrasymachus. But actually, I'm not satisfied. But that's my own fault, not yours. I've just been grabbing at all the arguments, like a glutton at a feast, and I haven't fully enjoyed any of them. We started by defining justice, but I dropped that to argue about whether or not it was a vice or a virtue. And then we got into whether justice is profitable or not, and now, even after all that discussion, I know nothing. I'm afraid I won't know whether justice is a virtue or not, or whether the just man is happy or not, as long as I don't know what justice is. Earlier on, I outlined Thrasymachus's basic position on justice, which, even if you disagree with it, and I hope you do, is still pretty clear. But Socrates's refutation of Thrasymachus is not that clear. It comes in a whole bunch of questions that are really tricky to follow and tricky to summarize. So I'm not going to summarize them. But I promise you that although there are some interesting arguments in there, there's nothing mind-blowing. There are no knockdown, discussion-winning arguments. I don't know anyone who has ever read Socrates' interrogation of Thrasymachus and thought, aha, morality is vindicated. And that is kind of the point. Because in my reading... One of the main points of this chapter is about methodology. It's about the weaknesses of the Socratic method. The problem is that Socrates' habit of questioning people and catching them in contradictions, that's great for shooting down other people's arguments and proving to them that they're ignorant and getting some laughs from your teenage friends. But it's no good at building up a positive case for anything. It's purely critical I'm not a moral skeptic. I don't think it's good to be unjust. But I like Thrasymachus. I like him because every time I hear him laying into Socrates and telling him off, I think, this guy gets it. Because Socrates is genuinely very annoying, and he genuinely 
has irritating and dirty argumentative techniques. From the beginning of the dialogue, Thrasymachus is accusing Socrates of playing dumb, of never giving any straight answers and only asking questions, of tricking people into sounding stupid, of purposely misinterpreting them, and of just derailing what people are trying to say. And he's right in every charge. Socrates does all of those things, and he even does them in that conversation with Thrasymachus. And it kind of works. Socrates does manage to turn Thrasymachus around and make him contradict himself using that series of questions. So technically, Socrates is the winner. But it's only a technical victory. Socrates doesn't actually convince anyone. Nobody learns anything. And Socrates acknowledges that. He hasn't presented a positive case, and it hasn't been a productive conversation. Whose fault is that? Well, it's not that easy to say because, on the one hand, Socrates is annoying and not persuasive and only asks questions. He spends all his time refuting Thrasymachus instead of presenting his own idea of justice. But on the other hand, when you have someone like Thrasymachus, who says he just doesn't believe in justice at all, what else are you going to do? Every time you try to propose what justice is, he's just going to call you naive. The only thing that Socrates has left is logical jujitsu. And one of the points I always take away when I read this part of the book is that I don't really like debates. Debates are an adversarial form of conversation. People are there to win. Thrasymachus, he has a flashy, counterintuitive position, and he wants to defend it in public and look smart. And he's not going to give up any ground if he doesn't have to. And Socrates is there to prove that he's wrong. And these kinds of conversations, they pretty much always go like the conversation between Thrasymachus and Socrates. Sometimes you get a winner, but no one ever changes their mind and hardly anyone learns anything. If you want to learn something from a conversation, you don't have to just agree with each other, but you have to be willing to be wrong, to listen to what the other person's saying and to go with it to some extent. Debates are sterile. And the fact that the encounter between Socrates and Thrasymachus ended in such an unsatisfying way means that the big questions are still hanging in the air unanswered. Is it worth it to be just? And what does justice mean anyway? And the young men at the party, posh boys who are embarking on their careers, they want an answer. But adversarial debate and Socrates' aggressive question-and-answer method can't do it. And that's why, in the next chapter, Socrates completely changes his approach. Thank you for listening. Thank you again to Michael Levy for the background music. And thanks to Paul Sagar from King's College London for getting on Zoom and yelling at me as Thrasymachus. Just to let you know, part of the reason I asked Professor Sagar to play Thrasymachus is because I happen to know that he doesn't like Plato very much, and I thought it might be fun for him to let loose on Socrates a bit. And I was going to play his answer about why he didn't like Plato as a closing segment. But I had such a nice time talking to him that I'm going to release our full conversation as a bonus episode. And today, I'm going to tell you a little bit of background 
on the character of Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus was an actual historical figure. He was a famous rhetoric teacher and a speechwriter, and he didn't just turn up in Plato's books. Aristophanes also made fun of him. He called him a hair splitter. And get this, according to the historian Neoptolemus of Paros, Thrasymachus's epitaph said his name, then it said, place of birth, Chalcedon, profession, wisdom, which I am very sad isn't a job anymore. Thrasymachus worked a lot in Athens, but he was from a town called Chalcedon, as I just said. And we don't know if he was as rude and angry as he is in the Republic, but we can tie him and his theory from the Republic into the context of the history of Athens. You remember from the Athens episode how I said that after they got rid of the Persians, the Athenians made this big naval alliance that actually turned into an empire and they forced everyone to be in it and to pay tribute. Well, Thrasymachus's home city was a subject of the Athenian Empire, and it wasn't a happy subject. And maybe this casts a slightly different light on Thrasymachus's cynical speech. He's this guy from a smaller city, and he has to go work in Athens. But he knows that that city is dominating his hometown and forcing them to pay tribute and mucking around in their politics. So maybe Thrasymachus's cynical idea that justice is just the will of the strong imposed on the weak comes from this experience of being a citizen of a bullied city. The reason we know that Chalcedon was not happy with Athenian rule is that shortly after the action of the Republic, the city revolted from Athens to win its independence. And unfortunately for them, the revolt got put down and the Athenians were sitting there deciding which horrific reprisals to do to them to make an example of what happens to rebels. And guess who the city of Chalcedon sends as a diplomatic emissary to convince the Athenians to be merciful? Yep, Thrasymachus, Mr. Might Makes Right himself. I know that as a matter of historical fact, ancient Greeks didn't wear collared shirts. But I cannot picture Thrasymachus walking back into Athens after what he said in the Republic to beg for mercy without pulling at his collar a little bit with one finger. I do not know how it turned out for him. <laughs> 